Welcome to Executive Leaders Radio, your spot in the corner office, the radio show where executives share their secrets to success. Executive Leaders Radio. You're listening to Executive Leaders Radio, broadcast from the Philadelphia Law Offices of Obermeyer. This is your host, Herb Cohen, with my co-host, Peter Snelling, Merrill Lynch, Andrew Hanlon, Hanlon, Shannon Lane, Newmark Knight, Frank, Maria Panicelli, Obermeyer, Amy Loftus, Slalom, and Taylor Levinson. And Peter, will you please give us a rundown on who we have on the air today? Sure can, Herb. We have Maria Gonzalez, President and CEO of Hase, Deanna Byrne, the Philadelphia Office Managing Partner of PwC, Dr. Jean-Pierre Issa, President and CEO of Coriel Institute for Medical Research, and Ethan Eisner, President, Reed Tech. Let's get to know our first guest, Maria Gonzalez, President and CEO of Hase. What is Hase, Maria? ASE is a community development corporation serving the Fairhill and St. Hugh neighborhoods, which is uh, west of Kensington. Um, we build affordable housing for families, senior citizens. We also develop commercial spaces to attract employers. Um, the population that we serve is 85% Hispanic. Um, most are living in poverty. About 57% of the uh, households that are in our community live below the poverty level. And uh, mm-hmm. it's mostly a renter. Uh, uh, Where are you from originally? I am from Morovis, Puerto Rico, a small um, town in the middle of the island. How many brothers and sisters? I am the middle of four children. And how young were you when you moved to Philadelphia? I was 10 years old. And what was it like moving from Puerto Rico to Philadelphia when you were 10 years old to that neighborhood? Um, it was different. I mean, it was stressful as a young person moving from a different environment where it's very green and lush and moving to more of a hardscape community here in Philadelphia. What kind of school did you go to when you came to Philadelphia? I went to the public school system, Ludlow, and here and, in and they, uh, And uh, you, were, you were speaking English when you came to this country? No. So um, you were speaking Spanish. When you came to Philadelphia and you went to school, did you have a lot of uh, Spanish language classes? No. Actually, uh, during those times, there was only one class per grade. And what class was that? That was the homeroom class. So how did you learn about math and science and everything else if all you spoke was Spanish and there was only one class in English, which was homeroom? Um, I, I consider myself a pretty smart, bright kid, so pretty much I had this desire to learn. So I read a lot of books and um, just... You know, mm-hmm. became immersed Peter? in learning Spanish. I mean, Maria, English. you mentioned in the green room that you grew up in public housing. What influences that had on what you're doing today? Um, it, it has a lot of influence because, you know, living in public housing, um, you're kind of like stuck in the middle because you're poor and you there's very little opportunity to move up. And there were not a lot of services during that time. And now I see by living in the, com- in, living in the community and experiencing that, I know what um, – what would be best Drew? for the neighborhood I serve. Ray, when you came to the United States, you know, you kind of watched your parents struggle for some time. And what, what was that like as a kid? Um, it was stress, stressful and full of anxiety seeing your parents, you know, trying to do better and just ba- making barely enough to survive and support the family. And, and how did those times impact you today as a leader? It impacts me because I am... I have empathy for the families that we serve and the people that live in our community because I know that I feel and I felt just the way that they feel. Maria? Were you closer with your mom or your dad growing up? I was closer with my mom. And what do you bring from your mom to work every day? Um, she was uh, a nurturing um, parent and also, but she was tough. So she taught me a lot about independence and being resilient. Taylor? 
So you said in the green room your parents divorced at 12. How did that affect your relationship with your siblings? It didn't. It made me, um, if anything, step up more and be more of, of a leader, the older child, and um, really be more supportive and help on my mother. Wait a minute. So you're you're the middle of four kids, and mom and dad got divorced when you were 12, but yet you took on the responsible role with the siblings. Yes. My older brother, um, he moved with my dad, mm-hmm. so pretty much I stepped up to be the older child. Mm-hmm. What, what, what did that stepping up when mom and dad got divorced have to do with you building this organization, Hase? Um, I think it taught me about being resilient, leadership skills, and um, really trying to figure out problems and learning from my mistakes. Um, and also, you know... Should you be admitting that, you know, I mean, you're, you're the head of this organization. Should you be admitting that you make mistakes? Absolutely. That's how we learn. Yeah, but you're telling all your people that you make mistakes publicly. That's okay. You learn mistakes. I think it's a bigger mistake when you don't learn from your mistakes initially. I just wanted to make sure I understood, Shannon. Maria, you've done a lot to create a supportive community for the elderly. Why is that important to you? It is important to me because, you know, that's a population that is very fragile and very frail in our community, especially when the majority of our Spanish-speaking elders do not um, speak English. So they have more of a difficulty in navigating and getting the services that they need so that they can age in place with dignity. Mm-hmm. Amy? Maria, you had a lot of pressures growing up as a kid. What did you do for fun? Um, so what we used to do for fun, I mean, I grew up poor, so what we used to do is all the neighborhood kids would get together, and we would organize what we were going to do for the week. So we would go to the local pool, we would go to the park, or we would just hang out in front of the fire hydrant to stay cool. Um, there was really no money for organized sports or anything of that. You described this group that hung out together in the green room as a pack. What was your role in that pack? So I was kind of like the leader, the organizer, making sure that, you know, we all were together and everyone was uh, secure and we were, we would go to the park together and make sure that everybody came back together. Maria, how many kids were in this pack? I would say about eight kids. Uh How did you go about getting everybody's cooperation? Did you yell and scream at them? No, I I did not. I think that naturally, you know, I'm very patient and... um, and very low key, so they naturally gravitated to me. Wait a minute, I thought the boss like screams and yells a lot. I don't believe in that. I want people to want to work for me, not have to work for me. You want people to want to work for you, not have to work for you. That's correct. What are you talking about? What do you mean? I want to make sure that, you know, the team that is um, working with me, and that's what I call working with me, that they feel inspired by the work that we're doing in the community, that we're fulfilling the mission of the organization, and not necessarily be afraid. If anything, I encourage them to bring new initiatives um, to the organization and create new projects wait, because wait, wait. overall, I can't do all the thinking for everybody. Uh huh. What, what did your mom and dad do for a living? My dad was a baker and my mom worked in a factory. Your mo- your dad was a baker and your mom worked in a factory. Where would you get this understanding of the human dynamic from? I think it's just I was, you know, very shy kid and I was a listener. I listen and, you know, engage situations and from there I'm able to do what I what do. What did you get from dad you bring to work every day? I worked, what I got from him is that he had this intense desire to be the best and do the best. That was a baker. Still, he made the best donuts in the town. <laughs> so you got, so you got the, 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 the drive to be the best from dad. What'd you get from mom? From her independence. 
she was a nurturer, but she, you know, taught us tough love. You made your mistakes. You're going to have to figure it out how to get out of there. So I became very independent and resilient person. So mom was full of love, but yet she helped you be independent. But mom was a factory worker. Hey, you know, when you grow up poor, you have to be resilient and you have to learn how to be independent and self-sustaining. So you can't judge people from what they do? No. What do you mean? What do you mean by that? What are you talking about? You can't judge them by their jobs? No. I think that, you know, in the community that we serve and you see a lot of families, just because they're poor doesn't mean that they don't have potential. That doesn't mean they don't have dreams, that they don't aspire to be better. They just need those opportunities. Just like me, I I grew up poor and, you know, I, I was able to build a career. I had many challenges, but I was able, I had that fire in my belly to make sure, you know, that I wanted to do more and do better and help people along the process. Maria, speaking of those challenges, I'm just curious, you know, what advice you would give to a kid that's maybe 10 or 12 and facing an uphill battle or, you know, doesn't have everything they want for? Um, I think that what, it's kind of like what I do in my life. Keep your head down, do work, work hard study and know that nothing is going to be given to you for free don't take anything for granted and just keep on um, pushing set yourself a goal a small goal and then after achieve you achieve that goal establish a bigger goal and keep on working Maria, following on to drew's question you described yourself as a free-range kid growing up tell us what that means and why it's important in your success? Um, We grew up, my parents just basically say, hey, go outside and play, and we were out there for the rest of the day um, with very little direction. I mean, we were very good kids, and um, we just learned how to uh, be free-spirited and do things on our own, be more independent, figure things out. Mm -hmm. Maria, what's the the website address of this organization called uh, HASE? org. All right. Spell that out for us. H-A-C-E-C-D-C dot O-R-G. All right. Give me that one more time again. H-A-C-E-C-D-C dot O-R-G. All right. We've been speaking with Maria Gonzalez, who is president and CEO of Hase here on Executive Leaders Radio. Don't forget to visit our website, executiveleadersradio.com. To learn more about our executive leaders, we'll be back in a moment right after this break. Want help building your business with help from this show's CEOs? Our CEOs can help you uncover more opportunities, grow your sales, connect you, help you raise money, all the big issues, because our CEOs have been there and done that. They've succeeded in creating millions of jobs and earning millions of dollars, and some are available to advise you. Now, email mentors at executiveleadersradio.com. That's mentors at executiveleadersradio.com. The same CEOs you've heard on the show for 10 years may be willing to help you build your business, uncover new opportunities, grow your sales, connect you, help you raise money, all the big issues, because our CEOs have been there and done that, succeeding in creating millions of jobs and earning millions of dollars. And some are available to advise you. Now, email mentors at executiveleadersradio.com. That's mentors at executiveleadersradio.com. We're back. 
back. You're listening to Executive Leaders Radio. This is your host, Herb Cohen. We'd like to introduce Deanna Byrne, who's the Philadelphia Office Managing Partner of an organization known as PwC. Deanna, what is PwC? Uh, PwC is a global accounting, tax, and consulting firm. We operate in over 100 countries, 50,000 plus in the U.S., and right here in Philadelphia, we have over 1,700 people. Okay, and you're the Philadelphia Office Managing Partner. Where are you from originally? I'm from Cowin, a small borough uh, right outside of southwest Philadelphia, blue-collar, and grew up in a, in a twin house there. So you grew up in a twin house, blue-collar neighborhood in a suburb of Philadelphia. How many brothers and sisters? I have two older brothers. I'm the uh, youngest of three. Okay. okay. How, how did your brothers inspire you? Oh, my brothers, um, you know, were great role models for me. They were really hard workers. We were very involved in sports. I think they um, provided me a lot of tough love that really helped prepare me for the business world. And we learned a lot about you in the green room. Sports was a big part of your life. What was your favorite sport? Softball was actually my favorite sport, but I played sports, lots of different sports growing up. Field hockey, basketball, I swam. Um, and softball. And you mentioned earlier that your mom would get to come watch a lot of your games, right? Yeah, my mom was and my what, what did that mean to you when you look over and see your mom watching? It was fantastic. I think um, having that community and knowing that you had that support from home was really important. And, and what did she tell you on the way home, maybe after a tough game or things didn't go as you wished? Well, she gave me a much different message than my brothers. So her message was always very inspiring. You know, you did a great job. You tried your best. Continue to do that and you'll be successful. And how about yeah. your brothers? What was what was their message? It was normally focused on statistics of my play for the day. <laughs> Deanna, you shared in the green room that softball was your favorite sport. Yeah. What role did you play on the team? Um, different roles in different organizations, but I pitched, played first base, uh, outfield. I even caught for a while. You also mentioned that you were a captain. How did that come about? Yeah, I was um, made the captain as my in both my junior and senior year for softball and also my senior year for field hockey. Was that because you were the most popular? No, I think it was because I helped every. I tried to help everyone on a team, you know, continue to advance their skills and try to find. How does right that role. relate to what you do today? I, I think it's right in line with what I do is trying to help our clients, help our people, um, find the right people to help our clients solve their problems. Tiana, what did your parents do for a living? Oh, my dad was a truck driver and then became a cab driver later, and my mom was uh, the lunch lady at my elementary school. So did you guys have a chance to sit down as a family and eat dinner together? We did. We did a lot. Um, not My father wasn't always there, given his driving schedule, but my brothers and um, my mom, yeah. And um, we tried to do that pretty often. And what was the typical dinner conversation like? It varied. A lot of it did center around our activities, our sports, also our aspirations. My parents hadn't gone to college, and so we were really focused on what each of us was doing. It was important to them that we go down that path, and it was important to us as well. And how does that relate to the way you run things at PwC? I think bringing community and trying to help everyone continue to advance, advance their skills. I think our organization is one of continuous learning and trying to help solve problems for not only our clients, but also our people. Deanna, you mentioned that uh, two older brothers subjected you to a lot of tough love. Can you tell us a little bit more about that? It definitely prepared me. I mean, things were... um, 
we, we were in an environment where it was very competitive, competitive to get that, you know, that last piece of meat on the table <laughs> and competitive in order to um, get what you wanted to in the household. Uh, who had to do the chores? I always had to run down the street for my brothers, run to the store, lots of different stuff. But really, it really helped me develop thick skin and it came with a lot of love. And I knew that they and were my biggest supporters. They still are. And was so, there a sense of camaraderie? Yes. When I became I was the firm's first female office managing partner in Philadelphia and I think there was more pride from my brothers than almost anyone else. So you said your friend group was super diverse. What was it like to try to find a common ground for all of you guys to hang out? I I think it's very similar to what I do now is trying to look at each of the folks as individuals and find you know where there are common threads that we can help one another and help our clients. Uh, You mentioned uh, earlier that uh you play different roles on different teams. Mm-hmm. How, how's that helping you build this thing called PWC, this ability of yours to play different roles on different teams? I, I think being part of high-performing teams is really recognizing what your role is on each individual team. And you're never going to be the best. I'm an accountant by trade. I'm certainly not the best technician. Um, but I surround myself, depending on what our objectives are, with the people that will help get to you know the best outcomes for our clients and for our teams. So earlier we were talking uh, during the green room, and, and you mentioned that uh, you have a, a milestone occurring this week where two of your kids are, are going away. And yes. you felt a little distraught about that. Tell us a little <laughs> bit about what, what's going on with you personally. Well, I have uh, four children. Uh, my oldest two are 20 and 18, so one will be returning to college this weekend, and my second will be leaving for the first time. He's going to go play juniors hockey down in Richmond, Virginia. So having two boys leave within 48 hours is, is a little uh, sad for me as a mom, um, you know, very invested in what they're doing. And, um, uh-huh. you know, so it's just transition for the family. So h- how many years have you been at PwC? I've been there 30 years. I'm coming up on my 31st year in a couple weeks. So you've been at PwC for 30, 31 years. How many other jobs have you had? Uh, none from a professional perspective, although I was a very good lifeguard. <laughs> so this is this was the first full-time job you've had. And you've been there 30, 31 years. Yes. So you're all about relationships, long-term, deep relationships, aren't you? Absolutely. I think that's what we pride ourselves within the firm is developing long-standing relationships with our clients where they can trust us to help them solve their problems. Oh, so you're like, so you really are a trusted advisor for the long term. I mean, yes. you know, you're feeling this lament that two of your four kids are going away. You're, you know, you've been with this firm for 30, 31 years. It's, it's all about relationships for you. Peter? Speaking of deep relationships, we saw emotion on your face when you were talking about one of your mentors. Tell us about Mr. Coyle. What did he mean to you? You know, he was a teacher and a coach of mine when I was in high school and, you know, far exceeding any, you know, expectations of a coach. He also helped my my brother and myself get jobs, um, drove me to my class for my lifeguarding certification. So really did that extra, took the extra time, went the extra mile. How does that relate to your team and how you manage and uh, look out for people? I try to do the same. I always try to, you know, look for the folks that need the help and make sure that if, even if it's not myself, that we're identifying who can provide that. Who can provide what? What are you talking about? The help about? that they need. So additional support, additional, you know, skill building, and how can we get that for oh, them? Wait, 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 wait. I thought you were all, I thought your job as head of PwC Philadelphia was to go get clients. But it sounds like your job is go get the team and keep the team happy. I'm trying to figure this it, out. Here. It's both, right? We don't deliver great service if we don't have great people. 
and that's that's what we produce, right? We don't make widgets at PwC. We sell really great, outstanding professionals. So it sounds like you're, you're like the master mother of the firm, aren't you? I, I would take that role gladly. Uh, what, what do you mean? What are you talking about? Well, I think, um, you know, I'm definitely a consensus builder from a, from a leadership perspective. I'm not an, an autocrat. And I look at my teams and try to develop, you know, really notice what are their unique skills and how can they bring the best to the team and then obviously to our clients. Amy, what else are you thinking? What were your friends, that group of diverse friends, have said about you and what you were like as a kid? I what would they say about you now? I think that they would have said, you know, I definitely had that CPA, the debits and the credits of the world must equal. So I had that um, kind of type A personality where things needed to be certain, but also really loved, kind of was very compassionate, I think. And I don't think they'd be very surprised to see that I was able to take a role that started off, you know, from a technical perspective, accounting, and became more of, um, you know, a leadership and management type role. Mm-hmm. We're really I, focused on the people. I also hear just the roots of your relationship that run deep over 30 years back mm-hmm. into your community, into your team, and that feels like something that's important to you. How do you keep building that at PwC? Very important. I think we pride ourselves on um, you know, continuing to build a legacy for the next generation, and how do we invest in our young staff in order to do that? Where, where does team building stuff come from? Your dad was a truck driver. And your mom was a mom. I mean, where would this come from? I think their whole family first mentality and getting us engaged in team sports very young really helped solidify those um, those values. Family first and team sports, you think, really laid the groundwork for you to manage seven. How many people you're managing? There are seventeen hundred people in the office. Oh my gosh! What's the website address of this organization? Uh, PwC.com. PWC.com. We've been speaking with Deanna Byrne, who's Philadelphia Office Managing Partner of PWC here on Executive Leaders Radio. Don't forget to visit our website. It's executiveleadersradio.com to learn more about our executive leaders. It's executiveleadersradio.com to learn more about our executive leaders. We'll be back in a moment right after this break. Back, you're listening to Executive Leaders Radio. This is your host, Herb Cohen. And we'd like to introduce Dr. Jean-Pierre Issa, President and CEO of the Coriel Institute for Medical Research. Dr. Jean-Pierre Issa, what, what makes the Coriel Institute for Medical Research special? It's an institute that is interested in understanding human health and curing diseases. And the founder of Coriel, Dr. Coriel, was one of the key people who eradicated polio from the United States. Mm-hmm. Uh, where are you from, uh, from originally? I'm from Beirut, Lebanon. I grew up in Beirut. Uh-huh. What was going on with you, uh, 8 to 14 years old? I had a warm and loving childhood until I was 11 years old. And then the civil war broke down, broke out in Lebanon. And it was essentially growing up in a war-torn country through my teen years. Uh, How many different schools did you go to? Between the ages of 11 and 17, I had a different school every year and a different place to live every year, practically. Why? Well, because when there is war, um, the, some places in Beirut were no longer livable. We had to move. We moved to different apartments. We stayed with friends. And one year we moved to France. To, I spent a year in school in France. Drew? Jean-Pierre, what was the impact that this civil war had on you? 
Well, when you live, uh, when you grow up in a civil war, uh, change happens all the time. So you you learn not to fear change. You also learn to be self-reliant. And, and what did you turn to for fun? Like, what did you guys do for fun in those days? I love to read and I love to dream. I was a dreamer through my childhood. I'm still a dreamer. And, and when you say dream, what were you dreaming about as a 14-year-old? As a 14-year-old, I was big on reading science fiction. I was dreaming about other worlds. I was dreaming about the end of the war. And I was dreaming about growing up and be a productive member of society. And, and how did dreaming back then impact who you are today? Scientists are dreamers, and I think science is one of the fields where you can express your dreams most vividly and get paid for it. That's wonderful. We have a special guest with us today, Courtney Dirks, who also works for the Coriel Institute for Medical Research. Uh, Courtney, did you have a question? Uh, yes, Dr. Issa, what attracted you to the Coriel Institute from your previous job? Coriel Institute is a wonderful place, warm, full of people who love their jobs and who love their mission. And the mission at Coriel is to cure diseases. Coriel has one of the largest biobanks in the world. It distributes material to 80 different countries, millions of samples to thousands of scientists. And it just is at the heart of the medical research enterprise. And um, that mm -hmm. was the right place to be to have an impact. Dr. Issa, growing up in a war-torn country, some young men become angry or bitter, yet you became a healer. Tell us how that happened. Well, I became a healer, really, was my family influence. I was brainwashed into becoming a doctor. My grandfather was a doctor, and it was ingrained in me that I would become a doctor. And because I love my parents, I did become a doctor as well. And yet that has opened many uh, vistas for you. Tell us about that. Being a doctor is a wonderful opportunity because you can do many, many different things as a doctor. You can cure diseases, you can treat patients, but you can also be a scientist, you can be a journalist, you can be a businessman or a businesswoman. So it opened up many, many different opportunities for me. When your parents wanted you to be a doctor, how did you feel? Well, I really felt at the time that I had no choice, but that I'm very grateful that they wanted me to be a doctor because I wouldn't be a scientist today if I didn't go to medical school. Was there a specific time when you changed your mind into the feeling like you had to, to feeling like you wanted to? When I was in medical school, I discovered science. I never really had much exposure to science when I was in school, perhaps because of the war, because of perhaps because of the different schools I was in. I discovered science in college and then in medical school, and then I knew that was my calling. And so I was very grateful that I was in medical school for this discovery. You currently focus on cancer research. Where did the drive to focus on cancer research come from? I'm indeed a cancer researcher. Uh, when I was training as a medical physician, I thought that cancer is really the next frontier. It's one of the most difficult diseases to treat, and it is intellectually challenging. I also had people in my family who died of cancer, and I thought that if, I, if I'm going to make a big difference in the world, this is the field where I could make a difference in. Jean-Pierre, you shared in the green room that you had a very tight network of family in Beirut. Did you have a best friend? I did have a best friend growing up, the son of neighbors. We became friends, I think, when we were one year old, and we remained friends for 55 years. And uh, we finished each other's sentences. We dream alike. We think alike. And I was very fortunate to have this relationship. And as you think about building your team in this role at Coriel, 
What attributes of that friend do you value that you bring to your work today? I think personal relationships are extremely important at work, and I, 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 I do try to foster a feeling where people are friendly with each other. Being happy at work is the most important feature. How do you do feature. that? Well, you bring people together. You bring people together at work. You also bring people together in social events outside of work as well. Maria? Uh, you mentioned uh, a lot about a period of constant change in your adolescence. How do you think that impacted uh, the way that you work today? Well, I tell people not to fear change, and I tell people that uh, uh, individual responsibility is very important. I also tell people when they are complaining to me about trivial things that what I want to hear about are solutions, not complaints. <laughs> mm -hmm. Jean-Pierre, your field is on the verge of many enormous breakthroughs. How does that feel to be right in the middle of such exciting change? Well, this is why I love it. This is why I stayed in the field for over 25 years. At Coriel, we are at the cutting edge of precision medicine where we're trying to understand each individual person, why they develop diseases, and how best to treat them. And to be at the center of this enterprise makes it all work worthwhile. It makes it worth getting up in the morning and going to work. Is it easy to share that excitement with the team? Do you, do you, uh, do you ever sleep? <laughs> well, I do believe in the work-life balance, and so I do try to sleep, and I think it's important to be uh, also a family person. I think it's important not to get lost in work, and I also think it's important for scientists to communicate their excitement both within the team but also outside the team. This is why I'm here today, and this is why I think that as scientists we are very grateful to be in a field where we are paid to essentially dream and imagine but also try to help people. So I I, I can um, I can't understand, but I can try to understand what it was like growing up in Lebanon and being surprised at the age of eleven about this war torn and about going to different places every year and having to move to France and well, it must have been very difficult at that point. What's the upside? What What's the benefit you got from from all that rotten stuff happening to today? Well, I think that you essentially learn a lot about life as a very young age. You, I, I learned, you, for example, that when things are good, seize the day. And I learned that when things are bad, be patient. Things will get better. G give me that again. Tell me more about what you mean. Well, what I mean is that, you know, in a war-torn country, war and uh, rockets aren't raining on you every day. There are some good days where things are quiet, and there are some bad days where rockets are raining and your life is in danger. And you get to appreciate the quiet days a lot more because essentially seize the day. It's fine now. Let's enjoy it. Let's go outside. Let's play. Let's bike outside. And when rockets are raining and your life is in danger, you know, be patient. It looks bad now, but it might be better tomorrow. So you're telling me that you appreciate appreciation and that um, and that you're really enjoying you're really appreciating and enjoying each day and then when something rotten's happening it's like we're going to get through this exactly exactly and I think that when things are good when you're having a good time with your family when you're having a good time with your friends you really should make the most out of it because you know these good days don't last forever on the other hand, when things are bad, you know, it's how, not always completely bleak all the time. How did you learn that? Who did you learn that from? Oh, it's just complete experience. You know, you learn that from being in a country where you might die one day and things look fine and the sun is shining the next. <clears throat> in the green room, you mentioned, I don't want to hear complaints. I want to hear solutions. Right. Who taught you that mindset? 
Well, I, you know, again, I think I've had many mentors when I was growing up. Uh, I've had many mentors as a physician and as a scientist. But more importantly, this is how I felt when I was a kid. You know, you, you, when, when, when there is war and when your life is in danger, complaining about it to your parents isn't going to get you very far, right? And so you just learn to internalize these bad situations and uh, figure out how you're going to live through it. And this is where reading and dreaming for me was essentially uh, a solution. And I still feel that way now, and my kids resent it sometimes. <laughs> you still feel what way now? I feel that uh, whining about trivial things is really not very productive. And I, and I tell that to people, and I tell to people that I want to hear about problems, but I want to hear about the proposed solutions to these problems, and that it is not my job, essentially, to just listen to, pe uh, uh, listen to people complain, but it's my job to make their life easier and, and, and to solve the problems. What's a website address to this organization known as the Coriel Institute for Medical Research? Coriel.org, C-O-R-I-E-L-L.org. We've been speaking with Dr. Jean-Pierre Issa. President and CEO of the Coriel Institute for Medical Research here on Executive Leaders Radio. And we will be back in a moment right after this business spotlight. Want help building your business with help from the show's CEOs? Our CEOs can help you uncover more opportunities, grow your sales, connect you, help you raise money, all the big issues. Because our CEOs have been there and done that. They've succeeded in creating millions of jobs and earning millions of dollars. And some are available to advise you. Now, email mentors at executiveleadersradio.com. That's mentors at executiveleadersradio.com. The same CEOs you've heard on the show for 10 years may be willing to help you build your business, uncover new opportunities, grow your sales, connect you, help you raise money, all the big issues. Because our CEOs have been there and done that, succeeding in creating millions of jobs and earning millions of dollars. And some are available to advise you. Now, email mentors at executiveleadersradio.com. That's mentors at executiveleadersradio.com. Back, you're listening to Executive Leaders Radio. This is your host, Herb Cohen. We'd like to introduce Ethan Eisner, president of ReedTech. Ethan, what is ReedTech? What are you guys doing? Uh, ReedTech is a global technology company based uh, right here in the suburbs of Philadelphia. And mm -hmm. uh, we provide uh, services to governments, to uh, life sciences uh, corporations, to mm -hmm. uh, to patent-driven companies and law firms mm -hmm. uh, around the world, helping them to be more efficient, more effective, mm -hmm. meet, uh, meet compliance needs. And uh, where are you from originally? Uh, I was born in uh, Baltimore, and then we moved to the Philadelphia area. How many brothers and sisters? I have uh, an older brother and an older sister. So you're the youngest of three. I am the youngest. And what was, how young were you when you started playing with computers? Uh, I was in my teens. Mm -hmm. And how did you get associated with a computer? Uh, my brother uh, brought one home uh, one day, uh, sort of out of nowhere. And, and what did you love about it? Uh, building stuff. Like, give us an example. You mentioned that you were you started coding at a young age, and what, what did you like about coding? Uh, well, it's it's the act of create, creating something, right? So, um, just to fast forward a little bit, to, you know, my first job, I was a coder out of college, mm -hmm. and uh, you know, I, I I liken it to like building a house, right? So, 
uh, even though it's all intangible in a way. So you're you're writing this code, you're building, putting these pieces together, these blocks together. Mm-hmm. And when you're done, you have something that actually does something. It serves a purpose. It has a function. Mm-hmm. And and having that creation and having that work, it's actually really fulfilling. Oh, I see. Uh, how young were you when you started making money? Um, uh, Did you mention 10, something 11? about you were you about uh, yeah you were buying and selling uh, uh, some candy what, 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 about five oh, a.m. Uh, what was that about Yeah, so I had an uncle who uh, at the time had a candy distribution business. Mm-hmm. So he served a bunch of small businesses uh, in the. And summer. what was your role with him? Uh, so I would help him uh, one summer. I helped do delivery. So mm-hmm. we wake up. We'd have to be on the road by you know five a.m. and start delivering. Uh, candy to and these small what, what, what evolved from that? Uh, so, it, first of all, it was, a, it was a really good learning experience for me. It helped mm-hmm. me sort of understand, you know, hard work. You know, mm-hmm. I thought candy would be lots yep. of fun. And what evolved from that? Uh, I, um, I thought, you know, I could take this candy. I could buy it at wholesale from my uncle, and I could start selling it at school. So you learned about entrepreneurship at a young age, Amy. Oh, excuse me, Drew. Oh, I was just curious. You, you mentioned in the green room you had a love for sports, both yeah. watching sports and playing sports. Definitely. The first question is, what athlete did you look up to or admire? Uh, there, there was a lot. Uh, Julius Irving probably tops the list. And why Julius? Because uh, I just thought he was such a class act, uh, you know, great player on the court and, you know, seemed to be a great guy off the court. And, and you know, what sport did you enjoy playing most? Basketball. And what was your role on the team? Um, I was uh, usually played forward, like power forward. Um, and uh, just, yeah, it, I'm not a great athlete, but at least in basketball, I'm tall, so I can, I can play pretty well. And it sounds like you're a leader. You actually created a team, didn't you? I, I did, yeah. When I was a teenager, I, I created a team. I wanted to, I wanted to play. I wanted to play with my friends, so I created a team. And, and what did that experience teach you about running a business? Uh, well, you know, it taught me about, you know, assembling people that you want to work with, right? Uh, finding good leadership. I also had to go out and find us a coach. Uh, you know, and, and, and how to pull that all together and mm-hmm. be successful and have fun while you do sure. it. Ethan, can you tell us a little bit about your mom and what she was like when you were growing up? Sure. Uh, yeah, my mom was uh, incredibly supportive, sort of a fiercely loyal person to, you know, her immediate family, extended family, friends, the community. Uh, so, yeah, she was a great influence on my life. Mm-hmm. How so? Tell us a little bit more. Yeah. I think you told us that she would keep the keep your family together and organized. Yeah, she yeah she definitely sort of ran the household. Yeah. And, and she kept us, like I said, connected. We had a pretty large extended family that we were very close to. So she sort of kept all those, uh, all those connections in place. And what did mom teach you that you bring with you to work with you every day? Uh, she certainly taught me about being supportive and the importance of being supportive. Uh, how, you know, I think for me, it definitely helped me be my best. And so that translates, I think, directly into work. You know, people, if you're supportive with people, you know, you can help them be their best. Amy? Who was Mr. Herman and how did he affect your life? Uh, Mr. Herman was a teacher I had in elementary school. Uh, he was, uh, you know, it's one of those things that you remember. I, and sometimes I don't remember what I did yesterday, but I remember his name and I remember, you know, sort of what he did for me. Uh, and I just felt like he, uh, he helped focus me. It helped me, you know, see that I could, you know, uh, you know, be the best that I could be. I was very hyperactive in elementary school, so mm-hmm. he sort of helped me focus that energy. How do you bring that focus to your employees? Well, you know, I, I, I try to bring that focus to my employees and honestly, ultimately to our customers just by, uh, by focusing on what's most important to them, right? So how do you deliver what they need to be successful, both at the employee level and at the customer level? Maria? Uh, in the green room, we learned that your childhood led you to be flexible. What do you think you bring from that to work every day? 
Uh, well, I'm open, right? So I, I don't go into work every day uh, sort of with these mandates and, and sort of this expectation that everything that comes out of my mouth is right. So, you know, when I meet with my team, whoever that might be, uh, you know, uh, I can change my mind. Uh, you know, I can be, I can be influenced. Uh, you know, if someone has a better answer, we'll follow that path. Mm-hmm. Peter? So you mentioned that you had great respect for your father growing up. Tell us why. So my father, uh, he's a very busy guy. He, uh, you know, he worked uh, for the government pretty much his whole career, uh, started with companies like RCA, but then ultimately the government, and, and he was a, a, a coder systems analyst. Uh, but he also kept himself really busy outside of work. So my memories were he'd come home from work, we'd have dinner, and then he'd go back out again. And so you know, whether that was he was you know, president of our synagogue at the time, he was you know, uh, uh, head of the Masons in the, uh, you know, in the Philadelphia area. So you know, I had a lot of respect for sort of the drive that he had to kind of, you know, do everything that he wanted to do and be passionate about Mm -hmm. it. When you were a kid and things got tough, who did you turn to? Uh, Typically to my mother. So this idea of not being able to do everything on your own, how do you integrate this into your life of being a CEO? Uh, I, 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 you know, honestly, I rely on everyone on uh, on my team. Uh, you know, we have a you know great group of people who work at Retech, uh, and they're very bright and very capable. And so, you know, I rely on them. I'm sure as much as they rely on me. How, how large or how small is your team? Uh, my, of direct reports. Yes. Mm-hmm. Uh, a little under ten people. And uh, you say you really rely on them. What do you mean? Meaning they they are the owners of their disciplines in the business, and so I rely on them to lead their areas of the business. Uh, it's a bi- it's a big company, uh, and so you need a strong team from you know from every level to be able to drive that business forward and ultimately deliver for your customers because that's that's what we're in it for. So on one hand you're supportive, but on the other hand it's their job. How do you draw the line? You know it's it's an interesting question. To me, I'm not sure I see the distinction, right? Uh, you know, we've uh, we've put together this team. We've we've either grew into it or brought people together, and people sort of support the mission, right? And so, if you're not supporting the mission, if you're not supporting, hey, I need to achieve for our customers, then you probably want to work somewhere else, I guess. What do you do if somebody's not able to quite do their job, or they need some help with it, or how far do you help them? As, as far as you possibly can. I, I believe in giving someone the, as much support as they possibly need for them to be successful. So you're really willing to give of yourself. I, I think that's an important part of my role. Maybe it's the most important part of my role. Uh, to be selfless? Well, to make sure that the people around me are successful. Because if they're successful, I'm successful. And if they're successful, our customers are successful. And so the business is successful. So you put them first. The yes. team's first. Yeah. Huh. So you're not the kind of boss to stand up and it's me, 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 and you take credit for everything, huh? I, I hope not. <laughs> uh-huh. So with your customers, if one of your one of your team members really knocks the ball out of the park, you let the team member, you let the uh, customer know that, don't you? Yeah, absolutely. Uh-huh. So you're not the one who's taking credit for everything. Yeah. You know, it's, it's, it's funny because I had a – very early in my career, I had a boss who I, who I modeled myself after in that regard. What do you mean? He – so – he did a great job of, uh, of giving credit to people on his teams for successes. Mm-hmm. So, uh, so he would always say, oh, you know, the, the thanks isn't with me. It's with this person or that person. Mm-hmm. And when things didn't go so well, 
he would actually absorb that for his team. He'd say, hey, that's on me. I'm the leader of this group, so that's on me. And then he privately, he'd take people aside and say, hey, here's what you could have done better to help you know, prevent this situation. And so I, I really modeled myself after him. That's interesting. That's not what I read in the newspapers, though, or here on the radio or television. I usually hear that this, you know, the boss is a, is a jerk and stuff, but that's not who you are, is it? It's, it's not who I want to be. I've never wanted to behave that way. Uh-huh. What, what, what's the website address for your organization? It's readtech.com, R-E-E-D-T-E-C-H.com. Readtech.com. What's the best part of your day? Uh, best part of my day is uh, is learning about how we're performing for our customers. We measure ourselves based on our customers' success metrics. Huh. Let me have the let me have the website address one more time. It's readtech.com, R-E-E-D-T-E-C-H.com. We've been speaking with Ethan Eisner, president of Retech here on Executive Leaders Radio. Peter, can you give us a rundown on who else we've had the opportunity of sure hanging out Sure can, with? Herb. We've had Maria Gonzalez, president and CEO of Hase. Deanna Byrne, Philadelphia Office Manager of PwC, Dr. Jean-Pierre Issa, President and CEO of Coriel Institute for Medical Research, and just now, Ethan Eisner, President of ReedTech. I would like to thank my co-hosts, including Peter Snelling, Merrill Lynch, Drew Hanlon, Hanlon, Shannon Lean, Newmark Knights Frank, Maria Panicelli, Obermeyer, Amy Loftus, Lalum, and Taylor Levinson for giving me a hand structuring the questions. I'll be providing our listening audience an educational and entertaining show. I'd like to thank our listening audience for listening. Otherwise, we wouldn't have a radio show. Don't forget to visit our website, executiveleadersradio.com, to learn more about our executive leaders. Thank you for joining us today, and do have a nice day. Bye-bye. Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. Dearly beloved, we are gathered here today to... Has anyone seen the bride and groom? Sorry, sorry, we're here. We were getting lucky in the limo and we lost track of time. No, Lucky Land Casino, with cash prizes that add up quicker than a guest registry. In that case, I pronounce you lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details.